I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. I'm joined today by the sociologist and political economist William Davis, who teaches at Goldsmiths, and whose books include The Happiness Industry and Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. He delivered the first of this year's LRB winter lectures, back after a three-year pandemic hiatus, at Conway Hall on the 10th of February, on the subject of the reaction economy. The lecture is available on our YouTube channel, and a version of the text appears in the current issue of the paper. Hello, Will, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. I don't want to ask you to to, to repeat your entire lecture here again, but perhaps we could begin, you could explain briefly what you mean by the reaction economy. Sure. I think reactions of various kinds have become a prominent feature of how online culture works in in various ways. Um, There are particular devices and instruments such as Facebook reactions. There are things like reaction videos, which um, might refer specifically to a, a type of video that someone might release on Instagram to react to a particular event. But there are actually technologically um, designed things called reaction videos within TikTok, which are ways in which people can sort of instantly react to somebody else's video. So a lot of the the, the entire architecture of social media platforms in particular is uh, organized around the idea of uh, people who are constantly watching one another, reacting to one another, uh, and then reacting to the reactions of one another. This is something that is, I think, quite noticeable when you're talking about things like social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram and and TikTok and so on. But one of the things I wanted to do was to kind of take that as as a starting point and to think about how these platforms inculcate a kind of certain sort of reactive psychology, a kind of reactive subjectivity, if you like, in those of us who who use them. But to then try to sort of widen that out, to think about some of the the history of uh, both in psychology, but also in other uh, adjacent fields of things like cybernetics, um, and even in some of the, I guess, cybernetically influenced areas of, of economics, such as in the, the, the ideas of, of, of people like Friedrich Hayek, have thought about things like markets as uh, instruments that have a capacity and a, and, and a unique propensity to react to, for example, the latest statement of, uh, of, of politicians or, or, or latest movements of, of, of taxes or whatever it might be. And I suppose from there, that raises even broader political and and philosophical questions about the authority and the the, the charisma of particular types of public figures whose capacity to react in certain kinds of what might seem to be kind of representative ways or spectacular ways. And you think of figures uh, such as Donald Trump or, or someone like that, who have developed almost as an art form an ability to take the stage and to 
almost just kind of react on on the audience's behalf. So these are the, some of the sorts of dynamics I was interested in in the lecture. Um, and I really wanted to sort of, I suppose, take the idea of reaction as something that, that I think initially you can locate within certain domains of, of social media use, but to then kind of sort of follow that thread outwards and think about what that might tell us about our kind of cultural and political moment. I mean, in a sense, people have been reacting to one another and reacting to one another's reactions for as long as there's been social life of any kind. So I suppose one question is, how is how has that been changed by the the shift of so much social life online? And how is how are reactions on social media, online reactions different from reactions in in real life? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So one of the, the, the crucial issues here is is, is ubiquitous surveillance. Um, the, the simple answer to your question is that we have got the capacity to curate and edit our reactions if when it comes to for instance offering some what might seem to be a kind of quite impulsive um, or knee-jerk reaction to something online of course sometimes people do have what seem to be kind of entirely sort of spontaneous or or, or and, and possibly regrettable kind of outbursts online but uh, to a great extent spontaneous reaction and um Affective response is something that can become sort of learnt and and practiced and and curated in various ways. That's not to say that it becomes fake, because it's not simply about here is the sort of real uh, response, and this other one is a kind of a, a sort of a, you know a phony one. Because after all, I mean, all phases of all culture is mediated in some sense. There is no a, a dream of sort of non mediated culture. Uh, which I think is a is a powerful dream, and I think for for reasons that we could talk about, there are there are reasons why I think at the moment it's it's something that has a particular hold over people. This idea that it might be possible to get to the sort of the authentic kind of felt reaction. What you know, what does someone what what does someone's reaction tell us about what they really feel or think about something? But um, firstly, the fact that we're able to kind of curate and stage our reactions in various ways, of course, changes something. But I think the other thing which has which has happened is that in an age of particularly the fact that we all carry little video cameras around in our pockets nowadays, and those video cameras are obviously socially networked, um, and obviously I'm talking about smartphones, is that um, there becomes the opportunity to, um, and, a, and a real um, sort of fascination develops around trying to capture the split second of a largely a facial reaction, but certainly something which is embodied as a kind of truth-telling moment about something, whatever it might be. So, you know, the the, the precise moment that somebody um, receives an engagement ring, say, or uh, the precise moment that somebody is suddenly sort of jumped out at in the street and and um, uh, some kind of prank is pulled on them or something, uh, their the, the movements of their their face, um, the, uh, the 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 way in which they react, particularly in a kind of an in a in an embodied way, has taken on a kind of signification or 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 a sort of relationship to authentic truth about human beings that I think is. Um, technologically only made possible by the fact that, that there is so much surveillance capacity that we all kind of carry around with us, but has also, I think, and one of the things I talked about in the lecture, speaks also of a sort of neuroscientific imaginary that I think has taken a hold of societies such as ours, that there are these sort of impulsive um, and non-discursive, um, non-linguistic 
forms of expression that, that kind of erupt at certain moments and that by being able to kind of capture them in, in, a, in a very sort of precise way, we might really kind of get to, to, to some sort of inner, inner truth. So, you know, I, and I referred in the lecture to, to the work of the sociologist Nicholas Rose, who's done a lot of history drawing on Foucault of, of firstly what he calls the psych sciences of psychotherapy, psychiatry, psychology, psychoanalysis, and then more recently of the neurosciences. And I mean, one of the things that Rose's work um, suggests is that 100 years ago, if we were sort of seeking truths about ourselves, we would have turned to certain experts and professionals who were experts on the psyche in 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 some in some in some capacity nowadays there is i think a sort of an instinctive sense that the neurosciences might tell us truths about ourselves that have a kind of uh, that, that reach deeper and also have a kind of objectivity about them that is sort of undeniable and is somehow kind of transcends culture and i think that this is a kind of forms part of the backdrop of this fascination in the kind of instinctive uh, and impulsive movements of the face and other things as well i mean there are other ways in which body uh, body language and sort of tone of voice and this sort of thing are, are, are brought under surveillance so i think surveillance technologies have have certainly changed something it is that is my sort of the brief answer to your question and you mentioned darwin's expressions of the emotions in in man and the animals which has those quite famous drawings of different facial expressions which are that we everyone can immediately recognize although actually looking at those drawings I without the explanations underneath I do find some of them quite hard to read but we they you other people's reactions one thing that interests me about this is that the way that other people's reactions we use as substitutes for our own mm. they're sort of those those short videos of of people laughing into their drinks which if we find something funny online we use that and this idea of yeah, authenticity or the apparently authentic facial expressions. One of the, I don't, I'm sure you've seen this, that many years ago, a few years ago, there was this video of a young Russian man in a nightclub. Mm. Have you ever seen this? And that he's being, he's being interviewed. And the, the first time I saw, and they're speaking Russian, I don't speak Russian. And the first time I saw it, the subtitle suggested that he was being told that Osama bin Laden had been killed. And his face suddenly erupts into this huge smile. Mm. I mean, as if, I mean, you think, is he just coming up on his ecstasy tablet or is, and, and he, and he does this sort of dance of joy. Mm. Anyone who can speak Russian watches this video. What he's actually doing is talking about how much he dislikes the music and says, <laughs> and it makes people pull these faces and dance like this. So what he's, he, he's mocking other people's enjoyment of something that he despises, which is then presented as a, as a spontaneous eruption of joy at yeah. whatever news event the subtitles want, want to put to it. And the version I, I saw involved him being told that God is dead and we have killed him. And at that point, he <laughs> kind of claps his hands and, and wanders off to the dance floor. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, that, but I suppose that, as you talk about it in the lecture, that this this anxiety of what appears to be genuine, this, this seeking after spontaneity and, and authenticity, constantly undermined by the fear that what appears to be authentic is in fact... Mm staged and yeah i mean i think we we have to sort of not take everything at face value in the sense that i mean so you refer to to these kind of gifs which get used or to to express a certain kind of emotion and and as you say there was sort of you know someone laughing into their drink or someone who's shocked and so on now you could say that this is a form of kind of you know just a, a new system of of semiotics it's a new system of representation and that just as we 
kind of are perfectly able to accept that you know the word dog <laughs> has no sort of um, in, intrinsic or, or, or sort of um, pure relationship to, to to the sort of furry animals that go around barking. Uh, it's perfectly possible to accept that some of these kind of images are, are at a certain sort of um, remove from 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 the kind of reaction that they might be referring to. So that's that's the ones which become sort of habitual and used in a kind of more everyday fashion. And after all, emojis, I mean, you know, most of us use emojis. Um, nobody would sort of think that there's something intrinsically kind of fake about it. I mean, there's the famous laugh cry emoji, which is a kind of, you know, a face that has the sort of tears rolling down its cheeks. And people have actually written about that emoji and about, you know, why is it that this emoji seems to kind of have a certain sort of hold over us. But nobody, if you, if you, if you send, if you say something, even if you say I'm literally crying right now, people don't think you're literally crying. So there's a sort of, there is a kind of a, a mutual understanding about, about what is um, meant uh, in some kind of um, literal sense and what isn't. Where things become, I think, more difficult is particularly with the kind of, I suppose, the power dynamics that arise from some uses of of, of surveillance technologies where... um, you know, and I've used, I've referred to sort of the the, the interesting issue of of pranks. I mean, pranks also kind of obviously long predate the internet and long predate video technology. But where situations are sort of deliberately designed and where information is deliberately withheld in order to try to sort of um, effectively carry out a kind of behavioural experiment in real time. Or, or to sort of turn a public situation into a into one where someone is effectively the subject of, of some kind of behavioural experiment. This is, I think, a quite a distinctively different issue. And I think this is, you know, this has created a sort of genre of content, which some of which is is is, is more benign than I've I've just suggested. Because after all, I mean, you know, there are there are pranks where you know people might be sort of approached in the street um, unexpectedly, and you know prompted for some kind of reaction. Then there are other types of what various kinds of reaction videos that I talked about in the lecture of where people, you know, will in some sense do a what is in some ways a kind of behavioral experiment on themselves where they will play some very famous piece of music for the first time that they've never heard before or they'll play it to some member of their family or they'll play it to a, a nine-year-old child and they will sort of you know wait for the reaction which is normally a sort of rather exaggerated one for the benefit of kind of creating engaging content. But I think that um, this turn towards um the the kind of um some some ideal of a of a spontaneous reaction that has been sort of set up in some way set up a bit like a, a kind of prank or, or or some of the kind of famous tv shows like candid camera or you've been framed and that kind of thing and some of these videos have huge virality online and they you know they 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 achieve a lot of a lot of clicks and they they get shared a lot and that inevitably means that there will be an incentive a straightforward incentive to um, produce and to plan and to stage these things in ways that becomes potentially far less spontaneous and natural and inverted commas authentic. Uh, and one of the kind of questions that hovers over some of this this kind of content is: Was that person genuinely experiencing a surprise? Was that had that person genuinely never heard that song before? Was that you know person you know genuinely receiving this piece of news for the first time, or were they sort of in some sense a kind of practiced at it? And this is a real, I think, a kind of riddle of a kind of this high surveillance, peer-to-peer surveillance society that we now inhabit, and and it speaks, I think, in a way to the kind of to to the politics of authenticity that I also talk a bit about in the lecture, where 
the, the, the kind of ideal of the authentic leader, uh, and often this is something associated with, with, with some of the, the populist leaders that have disrupted liberal democracies over the last 10 years, is that they seem somehow to be sort of real and authentic and unmanicured and, 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 and sort of themselves in some ways. But of course, there also tend to often be people such as, you know, Boris Johnson, a former, uh, sorry, uh, I was going to say Donald Trump, a, a former reality TV star, and Boris Johnson, who you know, as we know, has spent sort of decades kind of honing a certain sort of persona via various other media and, and, and panel shows and so on. So authenticity becomes something that some people are better at than others. And that that then, of course, you know, creates this sort of vicious circle of, of, of suspicion. And um, at the same time, a vicious circle of, of, of pining for something that will be, you know, the real deal. But the other thing with Trump which, as you, I can't remember if it was in the lecture or in answering a question afterwards, you compared him to a, to a wrestling star. The idea that a Trump rally or Trump's performance, that he is performing, he's performing a certain kind of... I mean, people have talked about how his delivery is like that of a, of a stand-up comedian. So he's performing, we all know he's performing, and his fans know he's performing. And, yeah, and you compared it to TV wrestling which everyone knows it's staged. Well, I think that it's interesting what you sort of think about. I think stand-up comedy is also another interesting um, analogy. I mean, the, 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 this idea that Trump rallies have something in common with uh, American wrestling um, tournaments, um, events, is something that various people have, have, have made this comparison over the last, I suppose, since the beginning of Trump's rise to power in, in 20, early 2016 in the sense that there's a kind of frisson of a, a kind of staged anarchy or stage and also occasionally sort of staged violence. I mean, one of the things that, that characterized Trump's um, rallies, um, particularly, you know, in that in that year of 2016 was the, you know, the people who would get sort of dragged out and, and Trump would be sort of cheering and encouraging the security guards to, you know, beat, beat them up and this sort of thing. And the crowd would all be cheering and this sort of thing. And um, the the question and it, and it, it was sort of a, there was something rather sort of ritualized about it and a, a kind of collective suspension of disbelief. I mean, whether or not those particular incidents were, were sort of you know were planned or not. I mean, the, the 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 sense was that this was people were there to have a kind of a good time um, and to and and to sort of revel in this sort of rather kind of Dionysian spirit of of of, of unruliness and 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 to do but to do so in ways that that would sort of have a beginning and a middle and an end sort of thing, um, which of course is kind of more comforting than, than a sort of genuine, uh, you know, sort of January the 6th style um, uh, version. So, but I think the, inter- the, the idea of a stand-up comedian is a really interesting one because a stand-up comedian tends to, uh, a, a friend of mine is a stand-up comedian and he said to me that uh, people don't really think they know how to do stand-up comedy until they've done 500 gigs. Um, and this obviously could take a take a long time. I mean, you could do you could do a sort of you know one a night for over a year, uh, but that's quite unlikely. But after after about five hundred or so, uh, you've you've honed a, a sort of version of yourself that is still related to who you are or who you consider yourself to be or your, yourself, something that your friends and family would recognise, but has also become sort of um, designed and honed and, and and practiced in ways that works well on the stage and which you sort of know how to operate if you see what I mean it's a sort of a it's a bit like kind of um, um, working out a, a, a different a sort of persona that that looks similar to you but also 
it, it is it sort of works for for the purposes that you need it to work for. And of course, stand-up comedians also tell stories that are simply not true. You know, on the way here tonight, such and such happened, and oh gosh, you know, and uh, you know, I, I I I used to you know be in the army, and this happened, and so on. And you tell all these kind of stories, um, and no one really cares if they're. People hear them as if they're true. I mean, they're, they're, it's a different experience from going to the theatre in the sense that it is a bit like sort of meeting a you know this person and their name is their name most of the time and these stories are told as if they're true stories and then they get heckled and then they deal with the heckler um, and then the heckler might heckle back. And so there is a kind of moment of sort of surprise and spontaneity going on. But part of the kind of enjoyment of good stand-up com- comedy of that sort of, sort of I guess, kind of quite observational tradition is that it's like being in the company of this sort of real person but who seems to have these kind of rather sort of superhuman capacities to um, always have something clever and funny to say um, to uh, not be intimidated to be able to just sort of stand there and things just sort of pop into their head but of course there's, there's, there's nothing's just sort of popping into their head they've done it uh, hundreds of times before and they have effectively um, brought up on stage uh, a sort of version of themselves that shares all sorts of different all these attributes that are that they themselves would would claim as theirs but have been sort of put together I mean of course there are people who completely come up with a totally different character like sort of Steve Coogan and, and, and Alan Partridge or something but but I think it's it's interesting to think about this that stand-up comedy hovers in this kind of zone between what we might think of as the sort of uh, the fictional and the and the empirical um, and I think that is a zone that reality television also operates into quite a great extent but I think also this sort of genre of reaction video content that I was interested in the lecture is in that kind of space where it claims neither to be quite fact nor fiction um, and by being neither fact nor fiction also promises some sort of route to potentially a form of truth that neither fact nor fiction quite offers uh, and and then when it turns out not to quite get you there there's a kind of moment of disappointment as well. well I suppose one of the things about all these situations with Trump's rallies and stand-up comedians is there's something about being there in person mm. but online Anyone can be that person who everyone's reacting to. And there is this, and and I suppose this is one part where the economy comes into it, that the algorithms reward reactions. So if you can post something which gets a lot of reactions, the algorithm pushes it up, more people see it, more ads get sold off the back of it. So there is behind all this, the way that we as users of social media take part in an exchange of reactions. There is an actual financial economic calculus going on behind it all as well yeah i think obviously some people have have mastered a capacity to react to things in a in a in an engaging way i mean one of the the things that i talk about in the lecture which is um i think a sort of a kind of pivotal category in 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 this reaction economy is is the figure of the troll and trolling you know there's a great book on troll culture called This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things by Whitney Phillips. And in that, she describes that a troll effectively creates a kind of a a triadic relationship, a sort of three-way relationship between the troll, 
the target of their of their troll, who is someone who they're basically trying to sort of anger or upset to produce a kind of an unhappy reaction. And then this kind of peer group, who are the um, other trolls or people who they sort of, you know, want respect from, who they're trying to make laugh, basically, so that there is this kind of constant sort of dual relationship going on between the person who is getting very, very upset, offended, angry, hurt, whatever it might be. And then these other people who are finding something funny. Now, there, there, there have been troll type figures prior to social media. And one of the things that I was sort of referred to uh, in the lecture as well is, and I think one of the things I'd been kind of interested in about for some years of sort of, you know, like why, uh, why do we not really have a kind of a, a name or a sort of theory of these people, which is the sort of celebrity reactor. Um, and I was thinking of partly of the kind of judges in, in, in talent shows who are not really judges in the sense of people who offer criticism. I mean, they do offer criticism, um, but they don't appeal to some sort of principle of judgment or of or, or a sort of measure of quality. They're also being kind of um, kind of behaviorally affected by what's on the stage. You know, the sort of famous moments in X Factor and Britain's Got Talent and so on are the moments where the sort of their face changes or, you know, they, they suddenly sort of their mouth drops or their eyes light up or this sort of thing. So it's sort of somewhere between critic and um, subject of a behavioral experiment. That's the sort of one of the kind of interesting kind of thing, uh, sort of areas of, of reaction that, that, that I'm interested in. But I mean, the thing about trolling is that Trolling is effectively so. They, you could say that someone like Piers Morgan is a troll. I mean, Piers Morgan understands uh, as well as anyone that what will continue to keep him in the media and earning money and you know maximizing advertising revenue and you know making sure he's got another TV show, even if one flops and so on, is that he will occasionally come out and get extremely angry about um, you know Meghan Markle or something like that. He probably doesn't care. He probably doesn't care about Meghan Markle. He doesn't, but he knows that by being angry about things or being extremely clear about, you know, this person should be sacked or, you know, or um, that, you know, this this footballer uh, should be sold or whatever it might be, that the clarity of of these various sort of reactions, which is somewhere between judgment and sort of affective response, um, will kind of keep him in the public eye. So it's a sort of way of being a, a sort of a, a little bit like an influencer. I think the thing about trolling, trolling in general, is that what trolling does is exploit the capacity of the internet for a type of context collapse where, I mean, part of the sort of um, harm of trolling, but also some of the joy of it, is the capacity to intrude into other people's um you know, for instance, in, as, as Whitney Phillips's book sort of talks about grief trolling, where you know one set of people are, are, are sort of mourning someone, and somebody else will sort of intrude into their into their what might seem to be a private community, and 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 find ways of of sort of disrupting it and pulling pranks and that sort of thing. So there's a kind of like the ability of two different worlds to kind of collide, and I mean we see that the whole time on, particularly on Twitter, where um, sections of a of a, the media sphere who. 20 years ago, probably really didn't have very much to do with each other unless they sort of both to representatives both turned up on the same sort of panel show or, or, or sort of, you know, uh, news news show where um, people can, 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 can have these kind of clashes by kind of, you know, people, different things can be dragged from one area of the public sphere into a completely different area and sort of held up for ridicule and abuse or whatever it might be. And that's that's kind of fun up to a point because it's kind of um, it's anarchic and it's, it has a certain sort of surrealist um, and mischievous uh, quality to it. It's, it can be humorous and so on. But it also creates a kind of collapse of, of, of meaning um, and also a sort of I think almost a sort of fear of of sincerity in 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 certain regards where effectively one's words can be 
uh, chopped up and decontextualized, which I think is a more kind of perennial uh, fear of, of, of that kind of culture. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. I mean, there's a coercive element to all these forms of social media, aren't they? I mean, there is an expectation of a reaction. It's like if you're the only person in the WhatsApp group who hasn't put a put a reaction emoji on someone's photo of you know of their kid doing whatever you kind of feel you have to you don't want to be the only one who doesn't say you know put the heart emoji on the on the cute picture of the child I mean towards the end of the lecture you, you talk about the kind of forms of, of freedom and ways to sort of possibilities of, of escape from this um, and you begin by talking about why you quit Twitter in the autumn because you and you say that because you you know you had enough of the there was too much about the about the queen but was that was there an element that part of the the appeal was actually maybe i can stop reacting just step back and i don't have to react to stuff yeah i think one of the things that happens with with twitter in particular but i i've never used instagram but i'm pretty i'm fairly sure from observing sort of compulsive instagrammers and i i I mentioned instagram a bit in the lecture because instagram is is a has had an extraordinary effect on public space, I think, and maybe it maybe it's more visible as someone who's never had an Instagram account that I become. I'm so I'm so sort of I notice it so much. You know, the the I, I mean, I discussed in, in in the lecture the sort of you know these minutely kind of staged and set up photographs. I mean, I, I was on holiday in in Greece in the summer, and just there at one point there were I just was having a drink somewhere, and I just saw a couple who had spent over an hour trying to almost doing the identical pose, um, and I mean, okay, maybe it was nothing to do with Instagram, but I, I'm fairly sure that it would have been something to do with getting a particular kind of photograph that was going to garner an optimal reaction of some kind. Um, so clearly, I, I would I would think that, that Instagram has had a certain effect on people of trying to of 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 of, of seeing the world in terms of you know particular kinds of shot and particular kinds of, of 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 layout and so on. I also, I mean, there's also been stuff written about how Instagram has changed. Uh, the design of, of public space and of and of public monuments, so as to kind of create a sort of focal point for um, people to, to to sort of you know this is a particularly Instagrammable kind of spot, and perhaps it's got a mirror in it, or it's got a particular way of having the the city backdrop behind it, and this sort of thing. Um, and I think home interiors as well. I mean, the the fact that so many homes now you know inter- internally sort of resemble kind of boutique hotels, and the particular choices of sort of fabrics and sort of bath bathroom kind of furniture and so on, I think is partly about a sort of a, a society of everybody watching one another and, and, and seeking the approval of one another in, in, in a way that has changed the nature of domestic and private space. As for Twitter, I think, you know, one of the, the things where you, I personally really did think to myself, this is no good, was when you start to sort of see certain things and almost start to, you know, like without even meaning to, without even consciously trying or deciding to start to think of what would be the sort of kind of punchy, concise, smart ass, perhaps slightly humorous way of expressing that kind of thing in a way that might kind of please 
uh, various people. One of the <laughs> one of the sort of I think rather sort of depressing and shocking things that happened with Twitter after Musk took over. And by this point, I had stopped using my own Twitter account, but I did uh, I, I do uh, run I do um, update some of the, the my work ones, which are more to do with sort of sharing academic events and papers and that sort of stuff. But one of the things which I, I noticed from from sort of peering in was that now what Musk did was he cre- he added this function where you could see how many people had viewed your tweet, whereas in the past you could only see how many people had liked or retweeted your tweet. So this created this, you know, that that 10,000 people had seen this sort of pithy comment that you thought, you know, had been sort of perfectly kind of um, uh, sort of thought through and and, and, and um, curated for, for an audience. And out of those 10,000 sort of, you know, four people had clicked the like button. And suddenly it goes from being rather a sort of, um, you know, a sort of giving a feeling of sort of triumph to being a feeling of, of, of comparative sort of failure and this rather sort of dismal lack of reaction that, that um, arises. But yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I just I, I, I found I found that I was doing it a bit, um, you know, it, it, is a, it becomes a bit of a sort of a, a rather kind of compulsive habit, which is not something which is um, something that that's regrettable. I think that um, someone asked me at the lecture on this topic, you know, how did I feel about quitting Twitter, given I sort of used it quite a lot over the years? And I had to say that quite honestly, it does become, it did become for me, I did become less informed in various ways. And I did become, um, as I said at the beginning of the lecture, I, you know, the worry is like, you know, is, is the news still as interesting as it used to be? It's, in, it, it's, it's kind of curious. We can't sort of turn the clock back. But the the sort of classic liberal view of the pub, public sphere was one in which the vast majority of sort of participants in this public sphere would have a rather passive role. They would read the newspaper every day. You know, this was the sort of vision of of, of what kind of you know Benedict Anderson wrote about of, of, of print capitalism, and then later was sort of seen as the sort of rise of the, the the liberal public sphere with the kind of you know the salons and the, the coffee houses and so on. Of where and there would be some debate around what was in the news, but but by and large, one would be a sort of passive recipient of of news and to be a, a good citizen and a good member of this of this this bourgeois set of institutions you would most of the time engage fairly passively i mean my dad you know he reads he reads the times cover to cover every day and he watches the 10 o'clock news every day but at no point does he really apart from when he sort of twice a year tries to get a letter into the times at no point does he uh, sort of think that he what he has to say about any of this actually matters Nowadays, that is, you know, having gone from being a rather sort of heavy Twitter user to being a non-Twitter user, it's very notable how much that is no longer really the case. Because on some level, to to be interested in in something, you sort of feel that there should be some kind of what in 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 uh, this is a, I think I associate this idea with cybernetics, but this idea of a return path, um, the idea of or, or what cyberneticians would call feedback. You sort of feel that well, if I'm going to be engaged in this, and there's this this concept of engagement is quite interesting because we you know it's, it, it pops up all over the place. If I'm going to dedicate some of my time to to, to 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 this particular pursuit, presumably I also have some other way. I have some way of of, of feeding back, of reacting, of, of of saying yes, no, good, bad, something like that. And that I think has become a a form of selfhood or subjectivity or, or participation that has become extremely normalized in our society. And it's, once you've experienced it, it does become quite difficult to go back to being the kind of passive reader of that which um, some set of you know editors you know uh, uh, at some at some remove have, have decided is good for you to read. And so I think that really has changed quite a lot. Yeah, well, there's that distinction that Marshall McLuhan made didn't he, in the 50s or 60s between hot media and cool media. The hot media, I think this is the right way around, were 
high definition, low participation. And the TV, is an ex- as was, is an example of that. And the telephone is an example of cool media that's low definition, but high participation. But mm. And and there was always a you know in those days there was there was that payoff. But what we have now is high definition, high participation, and ubiquitous. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people pointed out that um, I think it's recently been the twentieth anniversary of the TV show Big Brother. Maybe it was a, a couple of years ago or so. But there was a, there was some sort of retrospectives of what did Big Brother represent. That was the you know the famous Channel Four um, reality TV show with the Big Brother house, and and it was clearly a kind of glimpse of a. Uh, future society or, or, a, or a nascent society of kind of ubiquitous sort of peer-to-peer surveillance. Although, of course, it also had the, 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 some of the properties of a behavioral prank because the participants in the house were not able to see everything that was going on, whereas everyone at home could. And crucially, of course, people voted on who who, who was uh, booted out. And so in that sense, it did have that kind of, yeah, an element of this arising participation. And um, I think that's right, is that... Um, People, of course, expect that level of participation. I mean, one of the one of the difficulties, and you see this with um, universities today. You, I mean, I, I, I referred to the concept of engagement, um, and I, I think that when you come across the word engagement, you sort of user engagement, reader engagement, student engagement, whatever. What it tends to mean is a is a form of sort of interactivity, a sort of low level but fairly constant interactivity where whatever it might be, the student, the reader, the consumer is sort of held close through the fact that they are willing to carry on kind of, you know, offering some sort of feedback and and, and there is a sort of a, a loop, if you like, a sort of a sort of cybernetic loop between sort of institution and 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 whoever the whatever individual you're you're trying to engage. And I think that one of the things you 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 see with universities today is there are all these sort of techniques and technologies aimed at student engagement, you know, trying to collect more data on how much they're actually sort of turning up on the campus, analyzing that data, uh, trying to sort of send them various sort of, you know, contacting them in various ways to get them to sort of offer some kind of feedback, you know, rather than just expecting them to sort of participate in class, should they be doing some online quizzes where they are, you know, not because the quiz is actually kind of good for them, but it kind of keeps them sort of engaged in some way, you know, that this is a way of, of ensuring that they're sort of, you know, that they're in touch, keeping them in touch in some sense. Um, and the problem is that when these things, I guess when these things maybe are, are done sort of absolutely expertly, then that achieves certain goals. But I don't think many universities really are set up. Uh, they certainly weren't originally set up for this sort of uh, activity and these sorts of technologies. And they may have tried to acquire some of this kit and some of this kind of know-how. But I wonder if in some ways by promising, in this instance, students a level of sort of interactivity and a level of instantaneous kind of feedback and data processing that institutions such as universities are very rarely able to actually provide. And they certainly, most of the kind of, you know, academics don't see themselves as being in that in that job at all. Whether in some ways students might become more kind of disaffected and disillusioned and disengaged in some ways in some of the more kind of traditional forms, because there's a sort of um, there's a kind of promise of of sort of intense proximity and intense dialogue that is then not really quite delivered on. And then what happens to to some of the other ways in which one might hope that a student would would sort of be a member of a community and this sort of thing. So that that that's one of the things that, that I think is is concerning. And if you you know take kind of shifting from from a sort of interactive media space to a to a more sort of traditional form of passive participation in the public sphere, one can feel a bit sort of dropped, you know, like how does one continue to sort of remain informed to um pay attention to the news? Uh, once some kind of promise of 
of, of engagement and, and interactivity is, is no longer there or, or has been that promise has been broken in, in, in some way. I mean, is that something that can be relearned, do you think? I mean, it's one that are those other forms of engagement, can they be relearned if you step back? If you just say, actually, I don't have to react to this, I don't have a reaction. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me about the people reacting the way everyone else does, or you have your Instagram moment and you need you need to take the picture that everyone else does, is because quite often maybe you don't have a response to whatever it is you're meant to be responding to. I mean, it's like the, if you go and see the, the Mona Lisa now, you have to queue up like in, a, in a, an airport. You know, they have those barriers to make you queue in a zigzag fashion and you get to the front and the curator shouts at you one selfie and then leave. So you have to look at the painting while you're in the queue because when you get to the front, there's this expectation you'll take your selfie with the, the celebrity joconde and, and then you'll be, be moved on. And there's this expectation you have to react to things, you have to have a response and hear all these pre-made ones which you can use or you can copy. And maybe there's a freedom in, in not reacting. I mean, so there's this interesting thing about compulsive reaction and impulsive reaction. I mean, those are sort of two kind of adjacent ideas. I mean, an impulsive reaction, I think, is what we a lot of the the, the hunt for reaction content is is concerned with is the idea that there is something in our neural circuits which sort of can be kind of triggered by the unexpected event and then suddenly you know our face lights up or something like that and that that is it's that idea of of, of the impulse that i think is has such a hold over people's imagination but yeah i mean a, a, a compulsive reaction is a rather more kind of i suppose a, a slightly more sinister idea i mean obviously it's not you know if it's like someone puts up their photo of their baby on facebook and one feels that because everybody else has, has has sort of given it a certain sort of reaction, you sort of feel, and also there's like a sense of, you know, I don't want to ignore this this huge event in time in my friend's life. It's sort of, you know, there's nothing I think sort of sinister about about feeling some kind of peer pressure to 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 be kind of nice and genial. <laughs> um, but I think that um, I think you know, of course, we also get kind of rather hounded for reactions in certain areas. And, you know, I mentioned in the lecture about the sort of constant sort of hunt for feedback on from every sort of delivery company and this sort of thing. And I think there is a certain sort of, most of us probably don't bother responding to those sorts of things. And that's partly because we want to be kind of left alone. There is a certain sort of desire for for the autonomy of not letting someone know how, how we felt about it or, or that sort of thing. There is a sort of, a, um, I guess, partly a sort of anti-surveillance politics of of, of refusing to, to to share one's experience, which is what so many of these kind of feedback forms uh, are concerned with. You could say, you know, that's just a sort of a a, a refusal or a withdrawal, and you know, th- th- there is clearly a kind of an autonomy in in doing so. I, I'm not sure about in terms of sort of a relearning. I mean, I think what a lot of this stuff gets in the way of is some perhaps rather sometimes rather unrealistic and sometimes rather elitist idea of of what criticism should be or of what aesthetic judgment should be you know there's a certain sort of uh, vision of, of 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 highbrow art where uh, certain people have the kind of autonomy to appreciate and value it um and and others don't i mean this is a sort of a, a, a long-running trope through the history of of modernism and, and and modern theories of aesthetics is that what needs to be rescued or restored well no i mean i think that if there's been a, a sort of mass democratization of aesthetic judgment and an aesthetic critique, that should be welcomed. 
But I think that the kind of formatting of that democratization and the kind of control over it and the sort of uh, routinization of it is obviously more what's the problem here. I think that, you know, it's important that all human beings work out what they like and what they don't like. Um, and I think that that is and what they, you know, what, what music they enjoy and, and how it affects them and, and, and whatever it might be. But I think that, um, you know, I think we struggle nowadays, given the sheer weight of, of, of media and the kind of algorithmic nature of the contemporary public sphere to be able to sort of um, find the spaces of freedom for the exercise of some kind of autonomous aesthetic judgment. And one of the things that I suggested in the lecture in relation to these kind of reaction videos where one of the videos I talked about is there's this whole YouTube channel called Mom Reacts, which is, you know, a a son playing his mum music and sort of seeing the effect it has on her. Then there's this other one of of children listening to kind of music from the 90s and so on. And, And what I was kind of rather speculatively suggesting in relation to those videos is that, you know, is it partly the fact that that we found it so hard in relation to particularly sort of, you know, classic pop music or, or sort of famous, you know, music like um, Nirvana from the 1990s or whatever it might be, that we've become so over, over, overly familiar with certain artifacts, certain content in the digital uh, vernacular that somehow the prospect of, of witnessing someone seeing it for the first time might vicariously uh, revive how we really feel about it or we really um how it felt to us when when we hadn't heard it sort of 10,000 times or something like that so there's a kind of i think a lot of this stuff all revolves around a, a rather i think rather unhappy uh difficulty that i think we all feel and i don't exempt myself from this in any way in 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 managing to kind of sort of exercise sort of certain forms of of kind of critical autonomy when it comes to the sort of what do we actually enjoy independently of some of the sort of, you know, as your example, you know, you, you queue up to see the Mona Lisa and you almost feel if you don't join the queue that you're kind of missing out on something that someone everyone else is getting. You know, there's a certain sort of this routinization of of, of how cultural judgment and, and participation works. So you, so you end you ended the lecture by asking, so the broader question is how any of us, but especially children and young people, can become comfortable with our own freedom, our own spontaneity, against the backdrop of surveillance capitalism, which is the real condition of the reaction economy. Do you have an answer to that? I mean, I, you know, you can't switch all this stuff off. And of course, one of the questions I got from the audience on that was, well, shouldn't we really be talking about the kind of policy answers to the power of surveillance capitalism, referring to Sashana Zuboff's book of the same name? Um, and the answer is yes, of course, that's the kind of um, sort of upstream uh, political economic problem here. I mean, I don't have a kind of simple, I don't have a policy answer and I wasn't particularly interested in, in, in policy answers. I do have a, a sort of problem with the excessive use of feedback mechanisms in everyday life. And, and you know, given that I'm a university lecturer in educational settings in particular, which I think are sort of um, can be distracting and produce a sort of uh, both unrealistic and unhelpful vision of of how pedagogy works and 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 as i mentioned in the lecture you know i i wrote this piece on a topic that i'd never really sort of dealt with before in the in the london review of books um last year which was called how many words does it take to make a mistake which was about uh edtech uh platforms uh, also about the pandemic also about my experience as a parent of a child during school closures watching the kind of edtech 
platforms that were that she was being kind of effectively required to use and and and, and what they did to 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 pedagogy and, and learning and so on and my own experience of being trained in online teaching as part of the campus closures um, of of those years and I do have some problems with a lot of that technology, which I outline in the piece and, 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 and what they do to un- ideas of shared meaning, what they do in particular for the humanities. Um, and, and, you know, they're being pushed by particular kind of interests of, of capital and interests of particular forms of capital that have that there's been huge investment in these areas in, in, in the last few years. So I think that we have allowed some of these um, technologies to extend further than we should have done. Um, and I think it's important to try and understand what the some of the consequences of that that is. Um, one of the things I, I guess I wanted to try and do in the lecture was to also uh, return to theories of action, um, which you could say as sort of, I mean, if, if the lecture was a critique of reaction as, a, as, a, as an idea deriving from both behavioral psychology, but also from particular traditions of, of cybernetics and and, and so on. Um, I, w- I was interested in where might we instead start from to develop a, a theory of action. Um, and one thing I didn't talk about in the lecture was, I mean, sociology as a, as a tradition has often, in some sense, sought to resist psychology and economics by focusing in on what is what sociologists from Max Weber and through Irving Goffman and others would call social action, and social action is that which uh, is is, to, is is action that is meaningful to the person who is engaged in the action. So that in order to understand someone's actions rather than just their reactive behaviour, one has to understand what it means for that person. So there's a question of the meaning, the world making, and the meaning making nature of of action. This this is taken up to a more sort of rather more kind of disruptive and potentially rather sort of heroic ideal by in in the work of Hannah Arendt, who I also talk about in the lecture, uh, who who has this whole theory of of action in in her book The Human Condition, that's of political action in particular, as being the fact that human beings still have the capacity to act in genuinely surprising, improbable, statistically incalculable ways, uh, and that this is a property of being human that will never be fully eradicated, and we can hide from it by, you know, looking to statistics and and trying to treat everything as predictable and controllable and 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 analyzable in quantitative terms. But there remains a sort of an aspect of of humanity that that, that evades all of that. Now that doesn't necessarily tell us <laughs> what what to do about it. It. But I think that partly, I think our imaginations have been perhaps overly colonized by some of the insights of, of behaviorism and, and the neurosciences, which I think um, are partly have, have, have achieved the successes they have, partly through the shrinkage of that uh, political and sociological imagination. So it was partly sort of ended there by partly as a way, as a as an invitation to try and start on the basis of humans as communicative and and meaning making creatures. I mean, this is probably a very ambitious project, but um, but that of course also relies on the fact that as people do make sort of find meaning and express meaning and share meaning in their lives, that it's not instantly sort of corrupted, hacked and and trolled by being sort of, you know, decontextualized and chopped up in various ways. So that's the sort of, I suppose, a a philosophical project more than a a set of policy answers. Yeah, a call to action, but not not in the um sense that that web developers use it, which is in no, fact sure. is a, a call to a call to reaction. Press this button. Yes. Will Davis, thank you very much. Thank you.
You can watch Will's lecture on, YouTube, on our YouTube channel or read it in the current issue of the LRB, along with James Butler on The Care Crisis and Irina Dumitrescu on Barbara Newman's book, The Permeable Self. If you have thoughts about or reactions to this episode or any other that you'd like to share, please email us at podcast at lrb.co.uk. Give us five stars. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.